Good morning. It's loud. I've been told I talk too soft, too low, so I put on this different microphone, but I didn't expect to be this loud. So you may be saying, what is he doing up there? He doesn't look like Paul. He doesn't sound like Paul. I don't understand why he's there. And my reply would be, neither do I. Uh, but anyway, Paul, is he was called. He had to go out of town. Uh, so this morning, we really are going to end then the study that we had done on John. They had gone through all the chapters. Uh, we're supposed to do a wrap-up, but since Paul's out, we're going to forego that. Uh, we are going to start a new study uh, right after our Friends and Family Day. Uh, Chris and I are going to be doing a uh, book from the Gospel Advocate called The Foundations of Our Faith, The Fundamentals. And so we're going to begin that. Then, uh, unfortunately, although a good book, we do not have enough books to pass out for that study. Um, Gospel Advocate has shut down their website shortly after the holidays, and they were redoing their website and all, and I think with the um, pandemic and everything, um, a lot of churches had slowed down and weren't doing Sunday school, so there had been a lot of purchase of materials, and so they waited. Uh, and last I checked, they were still not open, so we could not order any material yet. But uh, So we will not have books that we can pass out to everybody. I apologize for that. But So uh, our study today is going to be a little one-off. It's not going to be on John, and it's not going to be the start of this one because I didn't want to start and then have a week break and then go back again. So if you'd like to turn over in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to look at that this morning. So we're going to look at the idea of the covenants and Jesus Christ as the high priest. So we'll read this to begin with. It's not that long a chapter, so... Now the point in what we're saying is we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for priests also to offer to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy... Excuse me. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, when they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we're looking at the idea of the old covenant, the Mosaic law, commonly referred to as the Ten Commandments, and the new covenant, the one that Christ brought in his dispensation. Um, when you read this chapter, it seems very obvious what's being said here. The old Levitical priesthood is being done away with. Christ is now becoming the high priest. The old law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, is being done, done away with. It says here, it talks about his, uh, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And Christ is bringing his covenant, replacing the Mosaic law. Like I said, when you read this, it seems very obvious, but there are so many people in the world today that still continue to hang on to the old covenant. In the methods of their worship, in their teaching of the Ten Commandments, all these things, they're continuing to hang on to that. They, they have not let go of that. So that's what we want to look at today is these two. Uh, in this letter to the Hebrews, uh, it was written to encourage the Christians, to tell them to endure and to warn them not to abandon their faith in Christ. Some were turning back and contemplating a departure from the faith because of the demands of Christianity and that they were difficult. Living a Christian life is challenging and requires commitment. We can think of that today. It does require commitment. It can be challenging at times. But what we're seeing today compares in no way with what the Christians were seeing in the first century. Their commitment, to me, is outstanding. We don't have to worry about being murdered because we attend commercial service. We don't have to worry about being arrested and thrown into jail because we attend worship service. We can't be picked up on the street and jailed because we talk about Christ. But in the first century, that wasn't so. The persecution was real, and in an attempt to avoid that persecution, many considered choosing an easier way or even a different religion altogether. So the Hebrew letter was written to those who had converted from Judaism to Christianity, encouraging them to stay with the faith and encouraging them to forego all the thoughts of the persecution and things that were being done to be faithful to Christ, to the commitment that they had made. But some were not able to do that. Some looked for other ways. They wanted a religion based on how they wanted to live their life rather than on God's plan. We see that today also. Many will argue that. But it's very obvious when you look out in the world today. What are all the different denominations if it's not man's attempt to oppose his will worship upon God? God gave us a pattern of how worship should be conducted. And we're obligated to feel that pattern, to follow that pattern. We do our best to do that in our study of the scriptures. 
but there are those in the world who want to take shortcuts. They want to claim Christianity, but they don't want to follow everything that Christ says. The term Christianity means to be Christ-like. But if we're going to stray from what Christ teaches, then how can we claim Christianity? Right. When we look at Colossians 2.23, Paul says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they have no value in softening the indulgence of the flesh. So what is he saying here? Well, we kind of break it down and look at the scripture. It says, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. These false religions seem to follow the scriptures. They appear at first like they follow the scriptures. But they're promoting self-made religion. A religion of man, not of God. True Christianity has to follow all the scripture. If we really truly believe that the New Testament was provided to the writers by the Holy Spirit, then we know that what the Holy Spirit told the writers is what the Father wanted done, right? There's no variance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit gave the words to the writers, those words are what the Father wanted. There's no question about it. So if those words are from the Father, are we not obligated to follow those words? Okay, now are we obligated to follow some of those words or all the words? All the words, right? There's nothing in the scripture that says, follow my words as you desire, right? We talked before about the different avenues of worship. And when I was younger, I did not really like to sing. I've never been good at singing. Some people are. We see those men up here. I sit here. There's a reason for that. Okay? But in studying the scriptures, I learned one day, one of the obligations of the religion, of the worship service, is to sing, is it not? Okay. Then I realized there's no exception in that for me. Right? No matter how bad I may be on that day, I'm still obligated to sing. That's part of the worship service. But everyone doesn't seem to feel that way. It goes on and talks about asceticism, which is self-discipline, and severity of the body, or severe treatment of the body. And we see that sometimes today, not necessarily in this part of the world, but in other parts of the world. You'll see people with their religion and something has happened and they're going out and now they're beating themselves, you know, to show their devout religion, which is exactly in opposition to what Paul says. Paul says that does you no good. It doesn't no matter how much you do that, what matters is how closely you follow the scriptures. Unfortunately, most people base their religion on what makes them happy or what it's popular rather than on what God's word says. 
However, if we would seriously contemplate while listening closely to God's message, we could understand his truth and his wisdom. This is something we talked about before, <clears throat> and I've tried to discuss the difference in reading your Bible and studying your Bible. I can pick up my Bible and I can read, but if it never really registers to me, what good has it done me? If I don't understand what those words are saying when I finish, how has it helped me? Studying the Bible is when you look at those, you read those words and say, what does that mean? What does that sentence mean? What words is he using and why? Okay. How does that apply to me? Or does it apply to me? There are some things in the Bible that do not apply to us. We can look back in the Old Testament. It can give very detailed information on how to sacrifice animals to God. That does not apply to me. I'm not under that covenant. So we have to realize those things. If we did that, we'd be humbled by his holiness, astonished by his glory, and we would be satisfied by his plan of salvation and his worship. We are human and we have weaknesses and we're subject to sin, but oftentimes we would rather find a religion that fits our comfortable lifestyle than to change our lifestyle to fit God's religion. And that's what we hear a lot in the world today. People are seeking a religious group that fits the life that they currently have. We're all human. We're not perfect. We're all subject to sin. The Bible tells us that. Has anyone ever sinned in their life? If I'm subject to sin and the Bible tells me that everyone sins, if I'm joining a religious group where I do not have to change anything in my life, I can be assured I'm joining the wrong one. If I never have to change anything that I do in the way that I live my life, I'm joining the wrong religious group, right? We know in the scriptures, the scripture tells us that we do what the Bible says, we do what we're taught. And we're not joining a church, right? We do not have the authority to join a church. There's only one church. Who has the authority for us to be in that church? The Father, right? The Father adds to the church. Is that not what the scripture says? I don't add myself. I can't add myself. I'm not the owner of this church. God the Father is. He is the one who allows me in. Yes. Mm-hmm. We hear that a lot too is the idea of once saved, always saved. And they point to the scripture that no one can pluck me out of the Father's hand, which is true. But I can leave of my own accord. When I commit sin and I do not repent and I do not come back to the Lord, then I can leave of my own accord. Okay, what is a covenant? We've discussed this before. It's not a word we use very much in our day and age. But what is a covenant? 
a contract, right? An agreement. If you bought a house, I bet you signed a contract, haven't you? Obligations on both sides, right? If you purchased a car and didn't pay cash for it, you signed a contract, right? Obligations on both sides. If you not, do not continue to make your payments on time, the bank will happily come and take that car, right? So a contract is an agreement between two parties, a formal agreement or treaty between two parties with each assuming some obligation. That's an important part. Each party assuming some obligation. Okay? An agreement between two parties involving mutual obligations, especially the arrangement that established the relationship between God and his people, expressed in grace, first with Israel and then with the church. When the covenant is between God and man, God is always the initiator. Okay? In other words, man cannot put God under obligation. That's something we seem to forget sometimes. God is the creator. We are the created. We cannot put our creator under obligation in any way. God alone obligates himself to us. The promises that are made in the scripture to us, if we're faithful, come from the mercy and the grace of God. Not because we require them of him. It's because he offers them to us. This is an area which man has a lot of difficulty with. Mankind is used to trying to subdue his fellow man. And then doing that, he forgets that God is over and above us all. And we cannot do that with God. If man does not keep his responsibility to God, he becomes a covenant breaker. And we look at Romans chapter 1, starting verse 28, says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate or unapproved or worthless mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable or ruthless, and unmerciful. So if we do not follow those things that God has set down for us, we break our covenant with him. Those obligations that we talked of, we now have fallen short on those obligations. But concerning God, Scripture says, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Hebrews 13 and 5. God has now promised us that in the covenant relationship that we establish, he will never fall short on his obligations. That's what Hebrews tells us here. He has promised us that he will always fulfill the obligations of that covenant. Hey, yes. Excellent point. You see that in the world today. When, when, as you're saying, when we break a worldly contract, there's a penalty for that. 
But we as man think that we can break God's contract and not have to suffer any consequences. What is more important? A worldly contract or a spiritual contract? Why would we think the punishment of a spiritual contract being broken would be less than a worldly contract? But we do all the time. When we find ourselves alone and without hope, it's not because the Father has moved away. It's because we have, right? The Hebrew writer does not want the people of God to become covenant breakers by abandoning the new covenant and returning to the old covenant. In Hebrews, a striking contrast made between the old and the new covenants. Okay, when we look at the old covenant, <clears throat> first we notice the old covenant was exclusive. Okay? And approximately 1,500 years before Christ, God initiated the old covenant Mount Horeb, I mean in Horeb and Mount Sinai with Israel. It was recorded in Deuteronomy 5, starting in verse 1, and those verses that are following. When we look at that, it says, Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the status, this, I'm sorry, the statutes and judgments which I speak in your hearing today, that you may learn them and be careful to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, those who are here today, all of us who are alive. So who was the contract made with? Right. It was made with the Jewish people that were brought out of the land of Egypt, right? Okay. Now, that extended to their descendants, did it not? The promise was made to Abraham and to what? Come on, you know this. Promise made to Abraham and to his seed, was it not? Okay, so this covenant covers the descendants. Okay. I am not a descendant of that people. This covenant was not made with me. It was not made with my forefathers. This covenant did not cover me. Okay? The old covenant was exclusive and is of mutual obligation. When we look at Ephesians 2 and verse 12, it says, Remember that you, talking to the Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So what did he say about those who were not of that Jewish lineage at that time? Well, it says that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That you were strangers to the covenant of promise. And that you had no hope and you were without God. So, the old covenant. The Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, however you want to refer to that, did not cover us. Does this very specifically right here in Ephesians 2. Did not cover us. We were not under the Ten Commandments. And we're not under the Ten Commandments today. We have never been. This law was not made with us. It was an exclusive covenant between God and Israel. The covenant excluded all Gentile nations. The old covenant was a private partnership between God and Israel. It was limited to one nation. It was restricted to one people. It was for a select number of tribal people. Approximately 900 years later in 600 B.C., 
Jeremiah prophesied that God would make a new covenant. The prophecy of a new covenant was predicted by the covenant breaking of Israel. So we'll go back and look at Jeremiah in chapter 31. Starting at verse 31, it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made in their fathers, in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember them no more. It's interesting it talks about here. It says, I'll put my law in their hearts, men of God, and they shall be my people. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor. So why does it say that? Certainly we know that teaching is part of the new covenant. But it talks about in this promise from God about a new covenant that will teach no more. Well, you think about the old covenant. If you were not there at Mount Sinai, if you were born later as a member of the Jewish nation, were you covered by the covenant? Well, we just talked about that. Yes, you were, right? But being born, you didn't know all the things that had to go on for that to happen. You had to what? You had to be taught about that, right? The Bible talks about when you're a small child, the parents are to teach you. And as you grow up, you learn all these things that are involved in the covenant. When you're born, you don't know about all those feasts and all those days of observance and everything else that you have to do, right? You're a child. Those are taught to you. Okay, so you can be in the covenant, the Old Testament, but not know Christ, or not, sorry, not know God because you were born into it. And you were taught later. How do we get into the new covenant? How do we get into Christ's covenant? Right. Obedience to the scripture, repentance, confession, and baptism, right? Okay. So there's no need to teach you about Christ because if you did not already know about Christ, you would not be there to be baptized, right? Under the new covenant, people learn and understand and know about Christ before they're in the covenant. They're not taught from a small child inside the covenant. Difference between the two covenants. The old covenant has expired. God's people were guilty of covenant breaking, but God said he would provide something better. God promised to provide a new covenant, and this covenant would involve forgiveness and removal of sin, which Jesus ate final Passover with his disciples. He said in Matthew 26, 28, For this is the blood of my new testament, or covenant, which is shed for many for the remission or forgiveness of sins. A new covenant, a better covenant. If the old covenant were to stay in effect, then we could not have a new covenant, could we? The old covenant had to pass away for the new covenant to come into effect. Perhaps was there not some of the old 
There are some of those things that are repeated, obviously. But we don't follow them because they were old and brought into the new. We follow them because they were taught of Christ and his apostles. He's bringing out the point that we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore. Right. Correct. They were they were repeated under the reinstated yes. in the new covenant mm-hmm. uh, by Christ and his apostles, and that's why we follow them today, not because they run the mm-hmm. Correct. I like that. It's a good analogy. Um, I'm gonna try to speed things up a little bit because we're running out of time. But there's a list you can see here of scriptures that talk about how the old law has passed away. And I would like to have gone over that, but we're going to be pressed for time. We have about seven minutes left. So, um, Moving along, the new covenant is established. Um, <clears throat> the old covenant has a set of laws written in stone. The new covenant is written in our minds and our hearts. Because, the new covenant, because of the new covenant, we do not have to answer to a long list of laws that we can't remember, much less keep. The new covenant is greater than the old covenant because the new covenant focuses on the inner man. Transformation is much better than religious rules and rituals. Some people still think that religious rituals can make them holy. They do not realize that a person can do seemingly holy routines and still have an unrepentant heart. The things of the old covenant were but a shadow of what was to come in Christ. He is the substance and end of the old law. Under the old covenant, the Jewish people would constantly go to the rabbi to get his interpretation of the law. The rabbi was the expert who knew it all, and the people were ignorant followers who needed his constant input. Some Christians act like they're still under that old covenant. You see that a lot today. If you talk to someone about the Bible, comments sometimes you'll get was, well, I need to go ask my pastor. Or, you know, when I get to church on Sunday, I'll ask about that, and then Monday I'll come back. Okay, that's not how the new law was attended. We do not have a clergy and a laity under the new law. Everyone is equal. Everyone is obligated to fulfill the law. Jesus became our high priest. Yes, Jesus became our high priest. They looked to experts, whether they were priests or pastors or professors, but God did not want to create an elite class for everyone else to follow. God wanted us all to know him from the least to the greatest. Under the new covenant, there is no clergy-laity divide. We are all clergy. We are all priests. Christ is the high priest. But every Christian is to be a priest. So, when we look at 1 Peter 2 and 9, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Under the new and greater covenant, we can all come directly before God as citizens of the kingdom, as his own dear children. With his law written on our minds and our hearts, we do not need a human mediator to come before God for us on our behalf. In fact, because of what Jesus has done for us, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Hebrews 4.16 says, 
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Under the new law, we can know we have salvation. We don't have to question it. So many people question it today. You walk up to someone and ask them if they're saved, they're going to say, I hope so. I think so. Well, if someone answers in that light, you know they haven't really studied the Scriptures, right? Scriptures tell us that we can know we have salvation. We don't have to question it. Grace, mercy, and forgiveness of sins can be experienced in a way that they had never been known or enjoyed before. In Christ Jesus, the Christian can rejoice that there is no condemnation because of sins. Christ Jesus, the perfect man of God, died for the sins of mankind. That's making atonement for sin by the perfect gift of himself. It may seem strange that under the new covenant there exists a clause. Hebrews 8.11 says, They shall not teach every man his neighbor. Everyone will know God. We talked about that. We will know God. Teaching is a very important part of the new covenant. In the great commission, the disciples were to go teach and teach them to deserve all things that had been instructed. Those who have entered the covenant relationship with Christians with God have done so because they have con- consciously made the decision to do so. Not by that physical birth we talked about. They enter the kingdom uh, through the end of the, the family of God through the obedience. Therefore, it's impossible to find someone in the church who does not know how they came to be here or how they came to be a recipient of God's grace. You're not going to find someone who has repented, confessed, been baptized, and become a Christian who doesn't know why they did that. It took forethought, took understanding. And then we're about out of time, so on the conclusion... God has lovingly given us new and better, a new and better covenant. We have no need of observance of the old covenant feast or holy days of Sabbaths or animal sacrifices. We assemble together each first day of the week to worship the Lord, to encourage and to edify one another. It's highly important that we be covenant keepers. It is non-negotiable. Love, grace, and mercy are ever-present. Let us never be guilty of haphazardly despising this holy covenant given and ordained by God. We look at Hebrews 10, it talks about, starting verse 28, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be served by those who have trampled underfoot the Son of Man and has profaned the blood of the covenant which was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who has said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord said, Who judge his people. Is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. One thing we need to remember, those obligations. One of those obligations is to come together, to assemble, to worship. That's what we're here to, for today. We're required to come together on the first day of the week to worship our Lord. And to edify one another. A lot of times we get that confused with encourage one another. And it's not the same. We all know what encouragement is. But edification is to encourage one another in the word. In other words, to educate one another. That's a good thing about a class like this. We get these good comments from people other than myself. We're edifying one another. We're teaching one another. That's what the scripture tells us. 
We need to remember, as we talk about here, the seriousness of it. If we don't, if we don't come together in this manner, and we do not teach and we do not edify, it says we've trampled underfoot the Son of God. Okay? Profane the blood of the sacrifice. And then it says we have outraged the Spirit. Those are not things I want to answer for. That's how serious God takes worship. We have the opinion, not we as assembled here, but we as mankind have the opinion that we can come and go and take worship however we want to. And if we want to come that Sunday, fine. If we don't, fine. And you see that across all the religious world. People don't understand how serious this is. So, all right. I will go ahead and close. Classes are coming back, so thank you very much for your kind attention.